I want to tell you about a man named Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney lived in the 1500s, born near the very end of the 1400s in 1495. So he barely made it as somebody qualifying in the 1400s. And when Bilney was growing up, he had a strong academic interest that led him to study law. But the more that he studied and the more that he learned, he found that nothing he could acquire and comprehend brought him peace. And that's what Bilney wanted. That's what everybody wants. There was one day when Bilney was reading a copy of the New Testament, written in Latin, as many in the Middle Ages would know in coming across a copy of the Scriptures, it would probably be written in Latin. And he began reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And his eyes came to verse 15. And I want you to hear his own testimony of what Bilney said happened as he read these words. He said, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul. Oh, most sweet, comfortable sentence to my soul in 1 Timothy 1. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward looking, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins, being almost in despair, that immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. And after this, after this sentence, the Scripture began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. So when Bilney is talking about what the Lord did in awakening within Himself, a sense of joy and peace in Christ. It was the language of Paul, not in English, but in Latin. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that gripped Bilney in a way that left him changed. And I would say to you this morning, that this is the message of Christmas. It's a message of rescue. The words are powerful because they announce the mission of God's Son to rescue sinners. And rescue is the very thing sinners need. The message of Christmas is not a vibe. A sustained feeling of sentiment. The point of celebrating Christmas is to lean into the sinner's relief. That the promised Savior has come. The world is not a comfortable place. But 1 Timothy 1.15 is comforting news. The world is full of hardship and affliction. And we will not go through this life unscathed. But our bruised bones, like Bilney's, can leap for joy that this is true. We're not left to ourselves. We have not been abandoned or cast aside. The Savior has come with a heart of mercy. So I wonder if you feel like you've been walking in the darkness. I think Paul's language in 1 Timothy and what Bilney's encouragement would be to us is to lift your head and see the light of the world has come for you. Are you walking through a valley of despair? The Good Shepherd draws near and He will lead you through the valley and home. Are you weighed down with the sufferings of this world? 
The baby born in the manger will accomplish his mission. The Gospels tell his story that he comes and he overcomes sin and death. And his victory is ours by faith. Are you unsettled by news about things nearby or around the world? Are you uncertain what to hope for or even whether you should hope at all? Listen to the angel's words in Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And when the angel says all the people, I mean the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, the young and the old, the Jew, the Gentile, the man, the woman. This is news for all people. And so that means if you're here this morning, this is news for you. Even if you're broken and weary, even if you're downcast and weak, even if you're lost, living in pride and living in rebellion, this is news for you. Christ has come for you with a heart of mercy for you. This morning, we're going to study these words that changed Thomas Bilney's life when he read them in the Middle Ages. They're the kind of words that establish a deep joy and an internal relief that you don't have to perform to woo the love of Christ. But despite our sinful estate, Mercy has come down to us and fills us with hope. Let's lean in with the kind of comfort and relief that only the gospel can bring to sinners. We want to situate these verses. They're not the opening verses of this letter, are they? Verses 15 and 16. So they're quite a ways down into what Paul's been going on about. He's writing to his spiritual son in the faith named Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Ephesus was an ancient Near Eastern metropolis of a city. Hundreds of thousands of people hustling and bustling, doing all sorts of commercial transactions and tourism and especially pagan idolatry. A lot of false worship. A lot of pursuit of things that dishonor the Lord. A lot of people seeking to find their heart's joy in Ephesus in what would never satisfy them. And Paul tells Timothy... We've got some problems in the church in Ephesus because some people are teaching things they shouldn't teach. They're influencing people away from sound doctrine. I need you to put a stop to it. And in the opening verses of the letter, this is what his main point seems to be. And yet he takes an opportunity to deviate from the main point for a moment. And in verses 12 to 17, this deviation is not an irrelevant one. We shouldn't think of him uh, shifting aside from his main point for a moment as if he's going on about what doesn't matter. Verses 12 to 17 are filled with things that matter. People are teaching the law wrongly, teaching things that are contrary to sound doctrine in the midst of the Ephesian church. And Paul says that the law is valuable for those who, know, who use it lawfully. And that is to understand our guilt before God and our need for the gospel which saves. And beginning in verses 12 and following, Paul says, I was saved by this gospel. Here I was, a blasphemer, persecutor of the church, an insolent opponent of the Lord Jesus. I hated Christ and those who followed Him, and I wanted to put an end. And you know what God did? He said He looked upon my helpless situation, and He gave me mercy. He gave me mercy. And in verses 15 and 16, this saying that is deserving and trustworthy is a kind of saying that's not only true for Paul, he does personalize it, it's true for us. We need to personalize it. 
When Paul says at the end of verse 15, of whom I am the foremost, that means this gospel came for sinners and Paul says, I'm one of those. We could all raise our hand in that case, couldn't we? When Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we therefore qualify. Not because we brought anything to merit it, but we are that category of people. Here we are as sinners. Paul has been discussing what God has done for him. This is to no doubt embolden Timothy. Because when you listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, you can't help but be moved by it. When you read his conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, you can't be overwhelmed, but be overwhelmed by the amazing mercy of God towards someone who wanted to stamp out the movement of the church in the first century Roman Empire. Here was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, someone who had all the external markings of a faithful Jew and an impressive spiritual teacher, but he was an enemy of Christ. And he persecuted Christ's people. And the Lord saved him in spite of himself. And that's the only reason any of us get saved. It's in spite of ourselves. Our sinfulness, our rebellion, all our attempts to fix our lives and make ourselves better and good. We aren't people who can accomplish in our own strength what is needed for us. We need rescue. And Paul says, well then, Timothy, I've got a saying that I want you to hear. Let's listen to his words about the mission of Jesus in verse 15 and then the example of Paul in verse 16. The mission of Jesus. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is a very unique way of talking. He doesn't talk this way a lot in his letters. He only talks this way about a a saying trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance in what are called the pastoral letters. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So in these three letters written near the end of Paul's life in the 60s, before he's martyred under Emperor Nero, Paul speaks of certain statements that he calls sayings, which means this is not original with Paul. A saying here is language that's used to say people are aware of this teaching because they're Christians. We confess and believe this. It is the common understanding. That's the way to get at this saying that's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's what Christians were commonly known to believe, teach, and confess. So what is one of the things that was this saying? Well, the content of it is given a little bit later in the verse. But he wants you to not just know this saying. He says, first of all, the saying is trustworthy. So he says, what I'm about to tell you, Timothy... You don't have to scratch your head here and say, but could this really be? I'm just not so sure. You know, I've got, I've got some uncertainty here. He's saying here, what I'm about to tell you, Timothy, you can count on every syllable you're about to read. It's trustworthy. In fact, because it's trustworthy, the next phrase makes sense. It is deserving of full acceptance. Don't you want to receive things you know are trustworthy after all? I mean, if you come across and are able to discern in some way something that's manipulating you, something that's deceiving you, someone's trying to pull one over on you, and you say, okay, I've, I've spotted this. No one's going to take me in, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm aware of what's going on. I'm on to the scheme. So you're not just going to embrace and receive and just fully take on that because you know something has rendered your judgment Um, The red flags are going off and and you're thinking, all right, my, my judgment is telling me not to trust this. He says, here's a trustworthy saying, and it is deserving of full acceptance. 
I don't think it only means that every word of this should be accepted, so that's full in that sense, but fully accepted by everyone. Full acceptance has to do with not just the content of the saying, but the scope it is worthy to be believed in. And that is, it's universally the case. It is worthy of full acceptance. In other words, everybody, everywhere, ought to believe every word of what Paul's about to say. And the content is this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the content. He's going to personalize it at the very end. But let's think about that content for a moment. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's similar to the kinds of things Jesus himself said. If you look in the Gospels, such as in Luke 19, you're going to hear Jesus say, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that's very similar language to what Paul says. And Paul says these things in his letter after Jesus said them much earlier in the uh, first century. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sounds very much like Luke 19 verse 10. We also know from Mark's gospel, Mark 2 verse 17, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I came for sinners. I came to call sinners. That, that can overlap on the Venn diagram, if you will, with language Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is not some new doctrine originating among the apostles. It's based in what Jesus himself said of his own mission. In John 18, verse 37, Jesus says to Pilate, before he's going to be crucified, he says to Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So the idea of the Son of God coming for sinners, or coming into the world, is based on Jesus' own statements that he not only said during his earthly ministry, but that the apostles themselves heard him say, and here is Paul, converted after the ministry of the apostles in the ministry of Jesus, Paul's no longer an opponent of Christ and the apostles, but a believer in this trustworthy saying that's deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In other words, Paul believes about Jesus the same thing Jesus said about himself. Paul believes about Jesus the same thing the apostles taught about Jesus. And those who walked with him and heard him say, I've not come into the world aimlessly for some arbitrary wandering, meandering set of years. No, I've come with purpose. Filling his veins, everything Jesus did was purposeful to complete the mission for which he had been sent. So this saying is about salvation. He came into the world to save. Save is that idea of rescue and it's key to the whole verse. Here, here then must be some situation from which we need deliverance. If he came into the world to save sinners, then this mission must say to sinners, this was the necessary means for mercy to come to us. Our situation was such that the Son of God had to come for us to bring salvation. Salvation wasn't what you could accomplish. It is what Christ came into the world to accomplish. We are the recipients of God's initiating grace. 
We are the beneficiaries of a sovereign, unconditional work of God. A mercy. A mercy that took on flesh. Christ Jesus came into the world. We think about that this time of year. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. We remember the glorious truth of the incarnation. That is what this is about. Why was the baby born in the manger? Why did Gabriel come to Mary and then to Joseph in a dream telling them of this news and of this child that would be born? Why were the shepherds struck in such a way by the, the sight of singing angels and good news that they left their sheep and fled hastily to Bethlehem to see the child? What's going on? The news is that the promised salvation has come. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now the Apostle Paul, because of when he was converted in the 30s, was not some toddler in the days of Jesus' ministry where he would have had no awareness of Jesus. The book of Acts and Paul's letters do not tell us ever that the Apostle Paul went to hear Jesus of Nazareth speak somewhere. But, because Saul is a Pharisee, and a Pharisee of Pharisees, loving Jerusalem and keeping feasts, and therefore very committed to all ways in Jewish faithfulness, it is plausible that the Apostle Paul, in his rebellious life as Saul of Tarsus, not only knew of Jesus, and knew of some of the trouble of his disciples, but was aware of things that Jesus had taught even before his conversion that filled Paul, not with faith, but with anger. It's not beyond the pale that when Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Paul was aware of this claim of Jesus for quite some time. Again, to be clear, there's no gospel narrative or record in Acts of Saul of Tarsus interacting with Jesus of Nazareth before the resurrection. But given the swelling of the crowds, the intrigue of the Pharisees, and the conspiracy of the religious leaders, it would make sense, given the zeal with which Paul conducted himself prior to his conversion, that he had a very strong awareness of who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. And I'll tell you this, whatever Paul refused to believe before the encounter in Acts 9. Paul believes it now. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, to his bones, Paul believes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now this language, I think, can also imply the pre-existence of the Son. Let's think about this for a moment. When it says here, He comes into the world to save sinners, we not only can recognize the mission of Christ, consider how carefully worded this is. Christ Jesus came into the world. This kind of language is intriguing to interpreters who say, what if this is not only teaching us about the mission of the Son of God, but affirms for us the pre-existence of the Son of God? And the reason we'd want to consider this is because if we were to say, oh yeah, that person came into this place, or yeah, we came into this city, that kind of language is not necessarily language of origin, but language of movement or transition or arrival of one who already was. The, the, the reason this language is interesting to ponder then is because he carefully puts it this way, that Christ Jesus 
came into the world so that his mission in the world was not only to save sinners, this is the mission of the eternal son, the eternal son of God. When we study the four gospels, when we learn what they teach about Jesus, when we read what the Orthodox Church of the last 2,000 years confesses about Jesus in their creeds and in their catechisms, you know what we see? That the birth of Jesus was not the beginning of the Son of God. We learn this very clearly. And as Christians, those knowing the truth about Jesus, it must be what we also embrace and confess. We learn that the birth of Jesus is not the beginning of the Son of God. The birth of the Son is when the Son of God takes to himself a human nature in addition to his divine nature. We say that the human nature does not compromise the divine nature, does not undermine it, does not overthrow it or destroy it, rendering it null and void. We say that in the mysterious work of God, as people only now with one nature that we could not fully grasp, that the person of the Son is both truly divine and truly human. And so the rescue that has come for us is the rescue of God himself. God has come for us. The incarnation is the event in which the eternal Son takes to himself a truly human nature without destroying or undermining his deity. Hail the incarnate deity, we say, in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Those lyrics are very carefully stated because the incarnation is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, truly divine and truly human. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But Paul doesn't stop there. Here's how much he believes this saying. He says, well, if Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, I am one. He says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul does not believe he has a light problem with iniquity. Or that he has like the the occasional dabbling in or some sort of small problem with sin. That still to a degree that he can manage and handle, he's going to be fine. He believes... That if he were to truly understand and evaluate his sinful condition, his sinful condition, he would say, I am the foremost. He's he's using language here that tries to exalt the mercy of God and not any goodness in himself. He's not trying to say, well, you know what? I was pretty devoted to the ways of Jewishness. You know, I was a pretty faithful Jew. And when it came to Pharisees, listen, you know, you, you, could, really, you, you could really give me a thumbs up because I, I was really living a great life before the Lord. And Jesus just made an even better situation out of my already great situation. No. He says in verse 15 that he is the foremost of sinners. Earlier in verse 12... Christ had appointed him to service because in his former life in verse 13, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. We considered those verses last week, didn't we? None of those verses are flattering language for the Apostle Paul's heart. All of it is very honest language, transparent language, where Paul, in light of the mirror of God's word, sees himself as guilty before God and in great need of the gospel. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon is when he said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. And Paul knows this. Paul knows he has a great need for salvation, and he knows Christ. Christ has come to him in mercy. Consider the sinners Paul has already talked about that the law recognizes in verses 9 and following. The law, he says, is laid down not for the just, but the lawless. 
It reveals their transgressing state. It's, it's laid out for the disobedient, the ungodly, and here's the word, for the sinners. Sinners. The law is for them. For the unholy and profane. And then he gets so specific, doesn't he? For those who strike their fathers and their mothers. For murderers. For the sexually immoral. For men who practice homosexuality. For enslavers. For liars. For perjurers. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He says that the law is for them so that they can see themselves as the guilty. Because not only is the law laid down to demonstrate their guilt. Christ is given to them so that the gospel is for them in salvation. In other words, the law renders them guilty before God and salvation has come to them that in mercy they might be rescued. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like whom? Like, just read that list. And he says there in verse 10, and whatever else. This is not a complete list. This is not even all the kinds of sinners there are. So Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Sinners like these. Sinners like us. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. When Paul writes these words, he's been a believer for about 30 years. And Paul never got over the mercy of God. 30 years later, he's like, yeah, the more I learn about the gospel, the more I study the scriptures, the more I see the work of God among me, the more I realize how undeserving. He might have already realized in the mercy of God in Acts 9, how undeserving he was of such an encounter and a call and the sovereign grace of God. And don't imagine that just dawned on him years later. I think it probably happened pretty quickly. But he never got over that. He never moved past being amazed that God would save him and that God would call him and that God would sustain him. And that God in his steadfast love would work toward and in the Apostle Paul. Though Paul was so undeserving. Because it was never about what Paul deserved. Salvation exalts not human effort. Salvation exalts God's mercy. God is not interested in magnifying our effort. The purpose of the gospel is that God, through His Son Christ Jesus, would magnify sovereign mercy. And that's why these verses are written in 1 Timothy 1. It's filling a heart of a former blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent. Oh, Paul had faced so much. Oh, the things Paul went through. The losses he experienced, the suffering he endured, the affliction that was upon him. And what Paul never got over was the mercy of God that not only saved him, but sustained him through every difficult step along the way. 30 years has gone by, and Paul wants to praise God for his mercy. You know, he's going to say in verse 17 to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's been saying things like this from a heart of worship. Now we've looked at Paul's, we've looked at in verse uh, 15, this uh, teaching about the mercy of God, this uh, mission of Christ to give mercy to sinners and to save them. Look more at Paul's example in verse 16 as he personalizes the words. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, he's talking there about his sinful self, I received mercy for this reason, and here's the reason. That Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. Paul believes 
You need to know that God saved even me so that you would know you're not excluded from the mercy of God because of your sin. In fact, if you know of yourself that I am a sinner, then Christ Jesus has come for us. In other words, if he's come into the world to save sinners and Paul says, I am one and you're one, then here you have in the example of Paul the patience of God. I receive mercy for this reason. That Jesus Christ might display perfect patience. In the Old Testament, much is made of the slow to anger character of God. Yahweh reveals this of himself in the book of Exodus. Slow to anger and abounding in love. You know who embodies the patience and love of God that is divine and glorious? The Son of God who has come for us to save sinners. In verse 16, he says, Jesus Christ displays perfect patience. He says, that's what it looks like when God saved me. It showed God's patience with me. His long-suffering with me. That God was not hasty or rash. That is not the God we have. Instead, perfect patience toward the Apostle Paul. That Paul, the Apostle Paul did not condemn, but rather receiving mercy. And that this is an example, Paul says, for those who believe in him. You, you hear people say this from time to time, don't you? If the Lord can save me, he can save anyone. You know, you hear people say this kind of thing. That's what Paul's saying here, isn't he? He's saying this in verse 16. He's saying this, I'm the foremost of sinners. Look what mercy did. In other words, your sins are no match for the mercy of God. Just look at Paul. Living as an avid persecutor of the church, with a heart full of blasphemy against the Lord Jesus, seeking to imprison people, and even overseeing with glee the death of Christians like Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Paul was a wicked man. And he said, so, if anybody thinks they're too sinful for Jesus, I just want them to know my testimony. I want them to know what Jesus did in me. I want him to know that though I was the foremost of sinners, my great sin wasn't a match for even greater mercy. It took my life and he changed me. That's what he did. He says here that Paul's life would be an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. They're to take encouragement from the Pauline testimony that they also might believe. You know how... John's gospel near the end tells us all the signs and wonders were reported. These were written so that you might believe in the Son of God and have faith in His name. Paul's saying, listen, listen, you know, I, I'm not the Son of God. I just want you to know my testimony so that you might believe and have life in His name. I want you to know what He did. I want you to know what He did so that you would see how great His mercy and how wide His arms to come to Him though we are sinners. Jesus doesn't have disciples who aren't sinners. So go to Him. Flee to Christ, whose wide arms outstretched for us on a cross, and whose empty tomb, a confirmation of His victory and glorious defeat of sin and death, is counted toward all who believe in Him. Because as we believe in Him, what do they believe in Him for? The end of the verse. They believe in Him for eternal life. There it is. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. 
The message of the manger, the mission of the incarnation, the glory of this news of great joy for all people is that sinners have a Savior and their sins are no match for His mercy. And when we believe in Him, we have eternal life in Him because there's not life outside of Jesus. We have eternal life because we have Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to know God but by Christ. There's no other way to be saved but by Christ. There's no rescue for us other than Christ. Christ is the mighty redeemer and rescuer. My friend Jeff likes to say, only Jesus is worthy of a worldwide birthday party. And that's what Christmas is celebrating. I mean, who in the world receives this kind of attention and impacts the creation and history like the Lord Jesus who defeated sin and death? We celebrate His incarnation and we remember the miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's why Paul is so ablaze within him with this news. J.I. Packer said, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that years later, He might hang on a cross. In other words, Paul is willing to say of himself, I am the foremost of sinners because he knows it's not going to help him rejoice in the cross and boast in the grace and mercy of Jesus if Paul believed I had it coming all along because of who I am. No, Paul is undeserving. He is the foremost of sinners. One writer says that grace is amazing because it saves wretches. And that word wretch, we're going to sing that word in the lyrics of Amazing Grace in just a moment. That's not the most flattering word. It's not the sort of word that builds self-esteem. But I just want you to know this morning, the Bible is more interested in you seeing the truth of your sinful condition then in the cultural concerns of esteeming yourself, better to see your need for Christ and exalt Him for your mercy and to say, grace saved a wretch like me. That's what God did. Paul would say, that's what God did. The foremost of sinners, you know what God did? He saved him by grace and mercy. So this writer says, grace is amazing because it saves wretches. It doesn't put a final polish on nice people. He says, you can't be saved if you're not lost. You can't be freed unless you're enslaved. So when grace comes to save and when grace comes to liberate, we need to see ourselves as the objects of God's mercy. He is the one who has come for us, coming to save us, to show us mercy. That is the reason He has come into the world. Let's pray.